Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from SlyFlourish.com here with a video in which I'm going to talk about running Descent into Avernus. In particular, we're going to be talking about running Descent into Avernus Chapter 3, the real big, bulky, meaty part of the hardback adventure uh, Descent into Avernus by Wizards of the Coast. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the, the patrons of Sly Flourish. You too can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and helping to support the show. So yeah, we're going to talk about chapter three of Descent into Avernus. Uh, I have a series of notes that I want to walk through. And I want to start off by offering my number one recommendation for running Descent into Avernus. This is something I've been recommending in all the other videos as well. It's not specifically about chapter three, but it helps lead into chapter three. And that tip is tie the characters to Elturel, the city of Elturel, tie them to the Hellriders, and tie them to the NPC Rhea Mantelmorn. Uh, if the characters are well connected to those three things, they have a motivation that lasts the whole rest of the adventure. If they are not tied to there, you will you may continually run into the problem of the characters saying, why the hell literally am I doing this? I don't care about El Terrell. I don't know who the Hellriders are, and I sure don't care about Rhea Mantelmorn. If they aren't connected to those three people, the rest of the thread of the adventure kind of goes away. Uh, so, and then along with that, I recommend running the uh, small intro adventure called Baldur's Gate, The Fall of El Terrell. Uh, this was written by uh, Anthony Joyce and Justice Armand. It is a wonderful short adventure that gets the characters tied into El Terrell, tied to Rhea Mantelmorn, and tied to the Hellriders. And it's a much better introduction to Descent into Avernus than the actual introduction to Descent into Avernus that you find in the book. I cannot recommend it enough. I've run it. You can see another video in which I talk about it. Um, and it's, it's a great starter adventure. So that's, I always like to put that up front because to me, having now played through three-fourths of the adventure that has been paying dividends the whole time. And it's something you can do right in the beginning that makes this a strong adventure. So I highly recommend it. Uh, I also had a wonderful opportunity yesterday to talk to James Intercasso, uh, who is one of the authors of uh, Descent and Avernus. He worked extensively on the adventure uh, as a freelancer. And I asked him, I was, I was thinking about this video, and I said, uh, James, what are your top tips for running this, the chapter three of Descent and Avernus? And he said, uh, he offered the following. One is that you should download the sweet, sweet DMs Guild product called Abyssal Incursion. Uh, happens to be written by one James Intercasso. And, but it is, it is an excellent, just though, though a biased recommendation, it is worth it nonetheless. Uh, this is a DM Guild Adept product, and it includes uh, four major uh, sort of mini adventures that you can drop in into chapter three. And the one in particular that he recommended was going into the, uh, the Krakatoic, uh, a really nasty creature of Yinigu, uh, like a demonic invader that's like a huge crocodile. Uh, and in it, you actually get swallowed by the Krakatoic and uh, go on a dungeon crawl inside the body of a giant alligator. So he recommended that one in particular, and thus I'm recommending it as well. Uh, I did not get a chance to run that in Chapter 3, but I plan to run it in Chapter 4. He also recommended that the, 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 the one guideline, which we'll talk about more, which is that all things lead to the Bleeding Citadel. That if you think about Chapter 3... The beginning of chapter three starts with you leaving El Terrell and you're in Avernus for the first time. And the goal of chapter three is to get you from underneath El Terrell to the Bleeding Citadel, which is chapter four, right? And that's the, that's the main arc of it. So everything else that happens in between, all the stuff that happens in chapter three, the goal is to get from, from El Terrell to the Bleeding Citadel. And if you go there, you're good. And then you can change up the path that goes there. 
And we're going to talk a lot about that. Third is he recommended getting rid of the oh Lulu moments, right? So there's a few areas in the book where Lulu leads the adventurers astray. And about the first time you're going to do this, they're probably going to want to murder him, right? Because he, like he's leading you around in hell. And the first place he leads you, you get attacked by a hell knight right away. It's like, I'm not sure he's not betraying us, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a problematic plot thread when a trusted NPC leads you astray. And, and Lulu kind of does it. And it's really just there to elongate the adventure. And that's lame. So instead, what James recommends and what I recommend is using the plot seeds that exist. Uh, you, can, you can sort of take like whatever the plots are, whatever the little points are that get the characters from El Terrell to uh, the Bleeding Citadel in Avernus. Uh, take those and stretch those out and put them where you will. And don't have them be false don't, don't have them be false guides. And that's the final, that's James's final tip and, and one that I love and one that I will talk about more, which is uh, link the paths that you want, link the locations that you want. So there are about 24 locations in chapter three alone, 24 different places across Avernus that you can use any way you want. And they are set up in sort of paths, the path of demons and the path of devils. You don't have to follow those paths. Instead, what James recommends, what I recommend as well, is take uh, the book, read those locations, See which ones of those excite you and then figure out how to tie those together. Make those the locations that you want for your own path. Uh, you can also create what uh, some people have referred to as a point crawl where it's not just one path. It's actually forked paths and interconnected paths that can take you lots of different ways. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So there's a lot of room to customize it. And that means that chapter three really works better as a toolbox of locations and encounters than it does as a adventure story thread. So those were James Intercastle's top tips. I thought those, those were great. And I want to thank James Intercastle for giving those, giving those tips and allowing me to uh, give them to you. Luckily for me, a lot of people have been running Descent into Avernus and a lot of people have been reading Descent into Avernus. And uh, they have offered some alternative takes. I will say that there has been, uh, there's been, and this is passive aggressive, there's been a lot of criticism of Descent into Avernus. I am critical of Descent into Avernus. And a lot of people feel that areas that don't work. I brought up the fact that, like, to me, the introduction to the adventure does not work well as written. Although I have a, I have a tip, that one that came up while we were, uh, before the show, that I want to bring up about the introduction to Descent into Avernus that I'll offer for free. It's not about Chapter 3. Uh, but lots of people have criticism of it. And I will say that in many cases, the criticism, the areas of, of, of criticism can be fixed relatively easily. I feel like the introduction, Chapter 1, of Descent can be fixed by running Fall of Elturel and doing the three things I said. Tie to Rhea Mantelmorn, tie to the Hellriders, tie to Elturel. Those are pretty straightforward things, right, that you can do. Chapter three requires the most work that I've had to do so far to get this adventure to work. And my, my criticism is if I pay $50 for an adventure, I, haven't, I shouldn't have to do as much work as I'm doing. So take that where you will. My assumption is, though, you already have it. We have it and we want to run it. Let's figure out how to run it best, right? The book's already published. They're not going to change it. And luckily for me, other very smart people have looked at this and offered alternatives. Uh, Justin Alexander, who runs the website The Alexandrian, uh, has a thing called The Alexandrian Remix, which is a different take. And it's many, many, many articles about how to take a totally different look at running Descent into Avernus and also in particular running uh, chapter three. So uh, I highly recommend taking a look at this. It's a great big series of articles. So get comfortable.
grab your grab your coffee and spend a good some good amount of time. Uh, Even Tier has written an article called Avernus is a Sandbox. Uh, I think there's a number of them. And this one is actually part of a bundle that you can get on the on the DMs Guild. Uh, I got it, and it's a it's another good way of thinking about how to run Chapter 3 in particular as a sandbox adventure with lots of different paths that the characters can take. Uh, I recommend this. This will all be in the in the show notes, by the way. Uh, and the last one is uh, PowerScore. Uh, they, PowerScore writes guides for all of the published adventures. They did one for this. It is a huge article. It goes on and on and on and on and on and on. We, yeah, very big article, but it cover it's like the Cliff Notes version of Descent and Avernus. So if you're looking for like, just give me the summary, right? Get rid of the flowery language. Just give me the summary of what the hell's going on. And you can break it down chapter by chapter and figure it out. So that's a really good guide. Um, so those are three alternative takes that I recommend. Again, you can find them in the show notes. One of the things that became very clear to me in uh, chapter three in particular was the mismatch of potential themes. Like what is the theme of the overall campaign uh, the overall adventure and does do the do the actions and environments of chapter three fit the theme and this is where you get into if you run it the way i recommend of tying it to the hell riders to raya mantelmorn and to saving elturel that that theme is basically light and darkness right that's one way to think of it is that you have these these characters they are heroes who are going to give their lives and and risk their souls to save the city of elturel very powerful, right? Really powerful idea. Uh, that is a theme that you want to hang on to. And you want to make sure that theme is reinforced throughout. Retribution, you know, saving. Can Zariel be saved is a big question. Can you save Elturel is one question, but can you save Zariel? And learning about Zariel's fall, right? And, and her fall from grace and what happened. Really powerful story that you can drive. So light and darkness is, is a theme that I really like. Um, the other theme, which is more, f- more fits the original... Uh, theme of chapter one, if you ran it as is, is uh, descending into darkness, which is slightly different because the descent into darkness isn't you going to Elter- uh, going to Avernus. The descent into darkness means your descent into darkness. It means that you are becoming darker and darker, more doing more questionable things. The you know trying to do good, but it's the ends justifying the means, right? And uh, where this comes up is with soul coins. Uh, I have a whole other video where I talk about the morality of soul coins and how to deal with that. So I'm going to summarize it here. But the the issue as it comes out is that when you use a soul coin to drive one of the infernal war machines, uh, you're destroying a soul to do so. And in my thought and opinion, there is no greater uh, no greater crime in the multiverse than destroying a mortal soul. And it's because mortal souls aren't mortal. They're immortal. They, they cycle through. You die, you're, uh, you go to limbo, you're, you go to either like the, the heavens or the nine hells, you're reborn as something, you go back through, you get reincarnated, elven, elven souls reincarnate. So if you destroy a soul, you're breaking a cycle forever. It's terrible. Even if you're like, yeah, but they were a murderer. The murderer only killed mortal bodies. They didn't destroy souls. For you to destroy the soul of someone who killed mortals is worse. And it's theoretically infinitely worse. So this can come up in your game. And if you're playing the light and darkness theme, having characters that are heroes trying to save Eltra and then saying like, hey, check out these soul coins. And they're like, oh, and you're like, now you got to slot them in your machine and burn it so that you can go drive across the wasteland. And you're like, I'm destroying souls to move a machine a couple hundred miles. So an alternative that I recommend uh, if you're playing in this theme is use demon icker. No one cares about demons. Demons are crazy bits of chaos that are manifested right out of the primordial soup of the abyss. 
killing a demon, taking a ticker, feeding it in. It's still kind of fun and gory. It's still very uh, Mad Max Fury Road to suck up demon goo and throw it in the engine of your car. Great way to go. I highly recommend using Demon Icker as a vehicle. You can still have the soul coins as like a as like a turbo boost, right? As nitrous that you put into your vehicle. But um, I highly recommend uh, having an alternative to soul coins as a way to move the machine because the idea of destroying souls to move a vehicle around is really pretty lame. So uh, we talked earlier about the idea that all roads lead to the ble bleeding citadel. This was one of James Intercaso's recommendations. And it's something that I uh, really hang on to. I think it's a good idea that we keep in mind the shining star that takes us from the beginning of the chapter to the end of chapter, which is what are the steps and clues that take you from Fort Knucklebone to the Bleeding Citadel? Now, the adventure itself has two paths that you can take, the path of demons and the path of devils. Uh, both of them have been criticized. Again, I'm being passive aggressive because I'll criticize it too. Um, they're, they're both criticized as being very railroady and very sort of like collection quest based. You meet somebody, that person says, oh, you want to get to the next castle? I, I can give you the directions, but you got to do this quest for me. You go, you do the quest, you get a thing. They're like, okay, go to this next guy. And you're doing like this series and it's kind of like leveling up the characters and it's very sort of World of Warcrafty, right? This sort of like chain of quests. So instead you can design your own path and sort of build it around the theme that you have for the campaign. So you can really kind of build your own path. What you can do is you can take chapter three, read the 24 locations, figure out which ones you like, make an outline of those, maybe, and then kind of draw them together. Like what are the things that take you from one to one place to the other? It could be a lot of time, like good secrets and clues can take you there. So I did this. And to me, the theme that I really liked because the characters were tied to the Hellriders was the ride of the Hellriders, the, the, the Hellriders charge, right? And so the path that I created, I call the path of the Hellriders. And the path of the Hellriders really follows uh, the pathway of Zariel's generals, right? And if we look in here, I'm going to click actually into my show notes that I have uh, for my game. This is in my campaign, my campaign book. There are a handful of generals. Those generals, and in, in my version of the game, Gideon Lightward was one of the generals, right? Gideon Lightward was sent to El Terrell to kind of get it ready to be drawn into Avernus. So he was a vampire that was able to walk in the day because the companion protected him and uh, became a general and then was actually a vampire the whole time and always served as Zariel's spy master in El Terrell, and then later serves as her spy master in Avernus. So Gideon Lightward is one of the generals. Uh, Yale is the, uh, is a general who did not fall from grace. She, uh, worked with Zariel. This is, this is where my, my story is going. She worked with Zariel to protect the sword of Zariel. So Zariel before turning over and becoming a agent of um, Asmodeus handed Yale her sword and said, hide it. And so Zar so uh, Yale took the sword, went off into Avernus, stabbed it in the ground, wounded Avernus with the blade, and then the, the bleeding citadel rose from that location. And that's that's where Yale went. Uh, Olanthius is a, uh, a fallen general of uh, Zariel who became a death knight. He actually hates the fact that he has become a death knight and can actually become an ally of the characters. Uh, and then you have Harriman. Harriman is probably the most loyal of Zariel's generals, was loyal to her when she did her charge, stayed loyal to her when she shifted over and became the head of Avernus, right? the, the leader of Avernus, fighting devils. He stayed, he stayed uh, with her. And then the last one is Jandar Sunspire, uh, the final general. Jandar stayed loyal or be, was, was loyal to Zariel, did not fall from grace when she shifted over, and is the only one who knows where Yale 
hid the sword. And the other generals were told by Zariel to find out where the sword is hidden. So Zariel doesn't even know where the sword is, right? She gave it to Yael and said, hide it. Yael did. Zariel doesn't know where it is, but Zariel now realizes she needs it back, right? Zar you know, and, and I have a, a story thread about like why that would be the case. So Yael hid the sword. Zariel doesn't know where it is. Zariel sends her generals out, but, but uh, Jandar is the only one who knows. So they take Jandar, Sunspire, who is a vampire, turns Jandar into a vampire, impales him on a silver tree, a silver spiked tree, and expects that he will break down eventually, that the pain will be too great, and he will tell them where the sword is. And he spent 100 years that way. So now we have this new thread of adventures, right? We have the generals. And the plot of chapter three in my game was follow the thread of the generals of Zariel. That thread basically starts off with Fort Knucklebone. The characters start off, they go to Fort Knucklebone, they meet Mad Maggie. And the whole section on Fort Knucklebone in chapter three, you can run pretty much as is. Mad Maggie wants you to do jobs. She, she can tell you that she can bring you into a dream state with, with Lulu and you can find out what you need to know. And then, but you have to do jobs for her. And as part of those jobs, you can get your own war machine. And the war machine can help take you around. Again, a war machine that can be fueled by soul coins, but also by demon ichor. So you have some other way to get around. You do the odd jobs for Mad Maggie. You have the dream sequence in which you learn about the generals. And you learn a few key things about the generals. One is all of the generals know where the other generals are in Avernus. They can all find the other generals. They're all connected, except for Yale, who was broke. Her, her connection was severed from the other generals. So no, none of the generals, except for Jandar, knows where Yale is. But all of the other generals know where Jandar is. So if the characters can find any of the other generals, they can then find out where Jandar is, get to Jandar, and then hopefully from Jandar find out where Yale went with the sword and then go find the sword. So that's our thread of the generals. The, the easiest general to find is Olanthius. Uh, the Death Knight. And that's because it is known that you know, we can find this out. These are some of the clues you can spread out. That Olanthius's um, lair is the Crypt of the Hellriders. That's where he spends his time. So if you can find Olanthius at the Crypt of the Hellriders or get to the Crypt of the Hellriders, you can find the clue that will tell you where Jandar is. When you have the clue that tells you where Jandar is, you can go find Jandar. When you find Jandar, you can find Yale. And that takes you to the Bleeding Citadel. So you can decide when and how and where to drop these clues in and other locations and maybe other demons that know there are devils that know these things and tell them. Those are basically the, th the threads and you can pick which locations you want. The minimum for me was that you learn about the generals and you learn about Alantheus uh, being at the Crypt of the Hellriders at Fort Knucklebone. Then you go to the Crypt of the Hellriders. The characters explore the Crypt of the Hellriders. They find Olanthius's journals that talk about the fact that he hated what happened to Zario. He hated what happened to himself. And then suddenly you go outside and there's Olanthius and you can negotiate with him. You know, he's a death knight. He'd probably kick your ass. He's got two Gorgons. He's on a chariot run by two Gorgons. He's nasty, nasty piece of work. You negotiate with Olanthius and Olanthius says, I can tell you how to find Jandar. And in my game, he, he, he cut off his own pinky finger and handed it to them and said, hang this finger from a string and it, it will point the way. And so they hung it from the rearview mirror of their war machine and the finger would point and they would drive and go that way. And that took them to Jandar. The next one is going to Haramon's Hill. Haramon's Hill is where Jandar has been impaled upon a silver tree. He's a vampire. Uh, he knows the information about where Yale is, but he isn't telling anybody. If the characters save him, save him could be destroying him. Uh, um, it could be somehow saving Jandar. Jandar will then give them more information. In my game, he transferred his, he was slain, but it brought his soul out. His soul went into a rod that our warlock carries and she can now throw the rod in the air. The rod lands in a position and that points towards Yale. So the rod has become the new MacGuffin that can point the way 
towards the Bleeding Citadel. And then the characters follow that rod and they get to the Bleeding Citadel. That's like the shortest path. But the reality is there's lots of other options that, that, that you can run in here. And I wanted to put at least two. And one was, I loved the idea of the character's potential option for saving Tiamat. That Tiamat was defeated in Rise of Tiamat and is stuck inside of a, a puzzle box that Asmodeus possesses. And he's stored somewhere in Avernus. Uh, Archon the Cruel, Archon the Cruel, a champion of Tiamat, wants to find the puzzle box and save Tiamat. Uh, it's possible that Archon the Cruel's agent, Krull, could go find the characters and say, we've heard about your arrival here in Avernus. We think you might be able to help us out. And then they might have a uh, parlay with Archon the Cruel, where he says, I need you, if, I know what you want. I know you want to save Avernus. I, I know you want to save Elturel. I can help you, but you have to help me. I need you to find a puzzle box that's lost in here. And there's only one other being in all of Avernus that knows where it is. I can't do it because I'll be breaking all kinds of contracts that I have, but you can do it. And that can send on a new path where they go talk to the Sibriax. There's a Sibriax encounter. The Sibriax is a super intelligent being that actually knows lots of stuff. The Sibriax is a really good hub of knowledge inside Avernus for any of these different threads that you use. So you have to go, you have to save the Sibriax. The Sibriax tells you, yes, I know where the puzzle cube is. It is here. You go there, you recover the puzzle cube, you give it to Archon the Cruel. Archon the Cruel opens the puzzle box. Tiamat comes out and you're like, oh my God, we saved Tiamat. And Tiamat will, because she's lawful evil, will follow what Archon's rules were and will, will breathe on the chains and save Elturel. So that's a whole other potential path that could occur. Uh, another one is the Shield of the Hidden Lord. Uh, in my game, one of the characters is still carrying the Shield of the Hidden Lord. Trapped inside the Shield of the Hidden Lord is a super powerful uh, uh, archdevil named Gargoth. Uh, Gargoth wants to be free. And there's probably two ways that Gargoth can be freed. One, uh, the fires of Bell's Forge could break Gargoth out of the shield. Two, uh, being struck with the Sword of Zariel can break the shield and release Gargoth. And either way, you now have another archfiend, another archdevil who is at play in Avernus, who could take over for Zariel and, and take over the throne, uh, and also probably has the power to sever the chains and, and, and save Elturel. So that's a whole other potential thread that could occur. So instead of just this super linear pathway, you have these subpaths of other things that can happen along the, along the journey. You also have the opportunity at other locations in this area. Uh, the Hell Wasp Nest was one of my favorites. I liked it. It's a nice, compact, kind of fun thing to do. And at any point when it seems convenient, uh, wasps can come and steal Lulu and take Lulu away. And the characters have to follow the wasps. They find the Hell Wasp Nest. And they decide how to deal with it. This is one of my favorite things in D&D is creating situations and letting the characters deal with them. So they can look over a hill, see the Hell Wasp Nest, try to figure out how many Hell Wasps are there and decide how they want to approach it. In my game, they cast spells and, and hit the wasp nest, pissed off all the wasps. The wasps came flying out. They were riding along on their hell vehicle, on their on their infernal war machine, shooting at the wasps. The wasps were attacking the machine and there was a great battle on the road. So they never actually had to fight any wasps in the nest. Then they went into the wasp nest. They rescued Lulu. They also rescued another person and got a uh, helm of telepathy that was there as well. So they got a little bit of treasure. Nice little fun encounter to throw in the middle of hell. Very thematic to hell, the idea of a giant wasp, giant wasp nest in hell. Really fun. So there's lots of opportunities to drop other, other places that are there. Uh, so I mentioned that the Crypt of the Hellriders is one of the locations that is that was a major point in mine. However, unfortunately, the Crypt of the Hellriders is not well filled out in the adventure itself. Uh, it has about 20, or I think it's about 16 
keyed locations on the map, but only about seven descriptions. And it's because they redo the descriptions for a lot of rooms. And it can get really boring if you're doing a dungeon crawl there. So one of the tricky bits of Avernus is that it's all downward beats. From the minute you go into hell, uh, you're betrayed by contracts. You're dealing with really nasty people. Like when, when Mad Maggie is your idea of a friendly NPC, you know that you're not in a very nice place. So there is one nice place that you can drop in into the middle of your of your of chapter three of Avernus, and that's the Wandering Emporium. Uh, this is an emporium run by a Rakshasa named Mahadi. Uh, it has nice places to eat. It has places to resupply and buy buy food and buy. Uh, other, you know, buy all kinds of things. They deal in soul coins, however, which gets back to the soul coin problem. But you might say that you can convert demon ichor uh, into it. I actually created a special gemstone that has uh, Mahadi's sig sigil in it. A hundred of those is equal to a soul coin. If you trade in a soul coin and get a hundred of these, a hundred of these are worth about 10 gold each. So you can use them to buy things throughout. That way you don't have to break down a single soul coin. Um, you know, for a drink. But you might have Demon Icker also be interchangeable with this so that people who don't want to give up soul coins because, again, the morality of soul coins, they have some way to deal with here. But one of the tricks of the Wandering Emporium, this happened in my own game, is it won't be trusted. It's such a nice place in the middle of such a terrible area that they're, they're going to assume it's a trap. They're like, we're going to get stuck here. We're going to get enslaved. We're going to get attacked. Something bad is going to happen here, which is kind of an interesting theme on its own that like even when there's a good place, they're so broken by the rest of Avernus, they won't think it's a good place. And that particularly happened the minute Mahadi gave them a contract to sign. Even though the contract was dead simple, you you pay for what you use, right, was the contract. Very simple contract. But I was like, yeah, but what what counts as a service? Like, if I if you ask a question, if I ask a question, you answer it. Do I have to pay for that? And they, they got very suspicious, and my characters left. And they're like, we don't, we're not signing contracts. So you could, you could maybe forego the contract, and that way... Uh, your characters will still go there and have a rest and eat nice food. And you might have it like you could stay here. You know, like you don't have to go back out into Avernus. You can stay and you could sort of make it very tricky to leave, right? Uh, without necessarily. But the minute you ask the characters to sign a contract, in my group, they 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 got in their vehicle and they left unrested. They had, they had just fought big fights and they're like, we're not sleeping. We'll just keep going. And now they have to go to the Bleeding Citadel without having spent a full rest. It's really interesting that the Wandering Emporium is like the nice place in Avernus, but players won't trust it. And that might be okay. That might be kind of cool that they don't trust it. It's, again, kind of showing like how this place is breaking them down psychologically. That even when somebody offers them a helping hand, they're like, no, I don't know who you are. And we just fought giant wasps. So no. Chapter three is all about traveling through Avernus. There's lots of locations. Uh, reading the book, you recognize that there aren't, there's no distances that like Avernus stretches and condenses direction. There's no north and south. You don't really know where you're going. So how do you get from any one place to another? Uh, the book offers some suggestions, but I, I have some of my own. And one of them is that like you have objects that sort of lead the way. Perhaps it's spirits that lead the way. Uh, I mentioned the finger that like Olanthius cut off his finger and the finger would aim itself towards Jandar Sunspire. Uh, and then Jandar put his soul into an item that the characters had. They throw it into the air and it leads. You could have other things like that. You could have strange patterns in the clouds that they never noticed before. But now that they have received some information, they can see the pattern in the cloud and follow it. Uh, maybe, you know, they, they pour blood into a bowl and put, the, you know, a piece of metal in the bowl. The metal will follow. So you want to have like interesting ways for the characters to sort of learn what direction they need to go as they go from place to place. You can come up with all sorts of interesting ones and, and you know, kind of the weirder, the better, right? Like those could be some of the 
uh, MacGuffins that the characters have to find by going from different place to place. If you want to tie together other locations is you have to put together some kind of device that can show you the way to the place you need to go, right? That can be a whole quest on its own. Uh, if you're looking to fill out chapter three, uh, there's a couple things you can do. Uh, I mentioned before the uh, Abyssal Incursion product, which has got four sub-adventures that you can run inside chapter three. There's also Encounters in Avernus. This is a DM Guild product, very popular. Uh, it's a mithril bestseller on the DM Guild, written by not only by some very uh, excellent writers for the DMs Guild, but many of the writers... I think all of the writers that wrote for this also wrote for Descent into Avernus. You know, there's a bunch of DM Guild products that if you put them together, Encounters in Avernus, uh, The Guide to Candlekeep, and uh, Abyssal Incursion, these are like the director's cut of Descent into Avernus, right? These are all things that you, if you like this adventure, you want to fill it out, you want to bring in more material. There's a lot of material that were written by the authors uh, that help fill in a lot of the gaps or offer you a lot of alternatives uh, when, when, running this, when running this adventure. So I highly recommend it. If you think about it, Descent into Avernus actually works better as a toolbox for building your own adventures than it does in, as, as an adventure itself. It's got a lot of components in here. The 24 locations that you find in chapter three, you can pick any of those locations. You could run them as like small one-shot games if you wanted to. You could have you know, the characters fall into a portal and they end up at one of the locations in Avernus and then have to fight their way back out, but they only ever see that location. Uh, I was talking earlier with some people about the idea of taking chapter one as it is and separating it from Avernus. I mentioned that the plot line of chapter one doesn't work well with the whole rest of the adventure because you don't really care about Elturel if you were conscripted by the Flaming Fist mercenaries to hunt down cultists. But if you look at chapter one as an independent adventure where the goal is you were conscripted by the, by the uh, Flaming Fist mercenaries and your goal is hunt down cultists. And while hunting down cultists, you find out that the cultists are actually hired by one of the high dukes of Baldur's Gate, and you slowly dissect this corrupt high duke, that in itself is a fine campaign. And you don't have to do anything with Avernus. It's just a fun little adventure, maybe four or five sessions long, that would take you from like one to five. So the introduction of Descent and Avernus actually works really well as an independent one to five adventure if you want sort of this gritty, grimy, noir style uh, adventure of hunting down cultists and breaking corruption inside of a really corrupt city. It works really well. Same way, you've got maps of all kinds of locations. You've got interesting encounters. There's all sorts of stuff that's inside Descent and Avernus that work as individual parts. And then what you can do with this toolbox is take all the components that work for you, the things you like, the things you dig, the things that inspire you, figure out how to tie them together into your own path and your own adventure. So for chapter three, that's really where the work of this adventure takes place. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do to fix chapters one and two that are, don't take nearly as much work. Chapter three takes a fair bit of work, but really your goal is get from El Terrell to the Bleeding Citadel, and you guys get to figure out what path you want to take, which locations make sense for you, and do it that way. I hope this video is useful to you. Uh, I hope you are able to use it to help build your own interesting pathways for chapter three. Uh, in the comments below, feel free to write about how you uh, handled this part of the adventure. Talk about what paths you did, what changes you made, which locations you dug. Uh, help the other people that are, that are looking for advice and see where it goes. I wanna thank you very much for your time. Hope you found the videos useful and thank you very much.